Welcome to NTD News Today. I'm Kevin Hogan. Let's take a look at our top stories. Three Trump-endorsed candidates won and one lost in Tuesday's primaries. And in a special election, Republican Myra Flores flips a U.S. House seat in Texas from blue to red. The Sheriff's Office in Yuma County, Arizona, is investigating 16 cases of voting and voter registration fraud. Some may involve third-party nonprofit organizations, according to the recorder at the Sheriff's Office. The Federal Reserve ratcheting up its fight against inflation, possibly. It's expected to raise interest rates more than its previously forecast, but some say it's not enough. Some members of Congress are skeptical and others are supportive of President Biden's upcoming Saudi Arabia trip. Critics say they hope Biden's wish for more oil production won't overshadow human rights concerns. Primary elections were held in four states on Tuesday, Nevada, North Dakota, South Carolina, and Maine. Texas also held a House special election for the current term ending in 2023. NTD reporter Jeremy Sandberg has the projected winners. In Texas, Republicans picked up a House seat by winning a special election. Mayra Flores secured over 50% of the vote to beat the top contender, Democrat Dan Sanchez, avoiding a runoff. Flores will fill the spot left vacant in Texas's 34th district since Democrat Philemon Vela resigned in March. Flores is an immigrant from Mexico married to a Border Patrol officer and the first Mexican-born woman to serve in Congress. She campaigned as a pro-life and pro-Second Amendment candidate. Flores will face a much tougher challenge in November's general election when she runs against Vicente Gonzalez for the 34th district's full term, an area where voters have commonly voted Democrat over the last hundred years. In Nevada, Trump-endorsed Adam Laxalt won the Republican primary for U.S. Senate, defeating Sam Brown and six other contenders. He will run against incumbent Senator Catherine Cortez Masto, who is considered one of the most vulnerable Democrats in the 2022 midterms. In North Dakota, Trump-backed incumbent Senator John Hoven won the Republican primary against challenger Riley Kuntz. Katrina Christensen won the Democratic Senate primary with over 75% of the vote against Michael Steele. In North Dakota's House at-Large primary, Mark Hogan ran unopposed for the Democratic nomination. He will compete against the Republican nominee, incumbent Representative Kelly Armstrong. In South Carolina, incumbent Representative Nancy Mace defeated Trump-endorsed challenger Katie Arrington in the 1st Congressional District Republican primary. Trump-endorsed Russell Fry defeated incumbent Representative Tom Rice and five others in the House GOP primary District 7. Rice voted to impeach Trump after the events at the Capitol on January 6th. Fry joked on his Facebook campaign page he was going to fry the rice. He secured over 50% of the vote, avoiding a runoff. Maine's 2nd Congressional District has Bruce Poliquin as the winner of the Republican primary. Democratic Representative Jared Golden ran unopposed and will face Poliquin in November's general election. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. Investigations into voter fraud in Yuma County, Arizona, are highlighting the risks associated with fraudulent voter registration forms. According to an election worker involved with the investigations, some of the cases may implicate third-party nonprofit organizations. Entity's Jeremy Sandberg has more. The Yuma County Sheriff's Office and the Yuma County Recorder's Office is examining 16 open cases of voting and registration fraud. 
According to a statement from the sheriff's office, fraudulent voter registration has developed into a recent pattern leading up to the 2022 election. Some examples stated include alleged impersonation fraud, false registration, duplicate voting, and fraudulent use of absentee ballots. The recorder at the Yuma County Sheriff's Office, Robin Stallworth Phuket, told the Epic Times that fraudulently completed registration forms in the county are becoming a prevalent problem. Without naming them due to the ongoing investigations, Phuket says she believes that many of the nonprofits involved are political advocacy groups operating on a national scale. After running voter registration forms collected by some third-party organizations through a statewide database in order to cross-check identifying information on each voter form, Phuket's team found unusual signs and anomalies. Some forms had fake addresses and dates of birth from individuals already registered, people who were deceased or underage, and up to six multiple registration forms for the same person. Phuket clarified she believes not all third-party groups registering voters are disruptive to the election process and attributes the cases in the investigation to a few bad actors. She says while third-party organizations soliciting voter registration serve an important role in assisting voters, they are also a point of vulnerability in the election process and should be held to a higher standard. After noticing a pattern of fraudulent registration in 2016, Phuket and her team began to work with the Arizona legislature to develop new laws to regulate these groups. In a bill introduced by Arizona Senate Republicans in February 2022, provisions were included to hold third-party voter registration solicitors accountable. The bill would require third-party registration solicitors turn in forms within five days and have any fraudulent form subjected to a Class 6 felony. It would also require anyone collecting more than 25 voter registration forms to identify themselves with the Secretary of State's office so they could be easily contacted should any issues arise from forms they turn in. The bill failed its third reading in March and is set to be reconsidered for another reading in the state Senate. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. Michigan Representative Alyssa Slotkin has been named in a complaint filed with the House Ethics Committee. The Congresswoman was accused of unlawfully using government resources for campaign purposes. Let's take a closer look. The Foundation for Accountability and Civic Trust, or FACT, is a D.C.-based nonpartisan ethics watchdog. The agency recently filed a complaint with the Office of Congressional Ethics against Michigan Congresswoman Alyssa Slotkin. She was alleged to have used official resources for campaign purposes, solicited campaign contributions from congressional buildings, and violated federal campaign finance laws. The complaint is based on a virtual meeting in May between Slotkin and a political action committee, the Jewish Democratic Council of America. In the video, Slotkin was heard talking about the specific type of voter turnout she would need to win re-election. I do not believe I can win unless we have significant turnout from Michigan State students. Full stop. She further identified her ask for campaign contributions. That is my ask, even bigger than uh, all the traditional contributions and visibility and all those great things, which of course I always love. It's mobilization, usually in paid voter registration, paying students. That's what the, the Stacey Abrams model is, right? Paying students to register their fellow students. Throughout the video session, Slotkin was accompanied by her national security advisor, Greg Chafin. As a House member staffer, he is paid by taxpayer dollars and is barred from using government resources to campaign for his boss. Slotkin apparently attended the meeting from her main office in the Longworth House office building. The fact complaint noted that both federal law and House ethics rules prohibit official funds and resources from being used for campaign or political purposes. 
Here, the term official resources refers to all taxpayer-funded assets, including congressional buildings and congressional staff time. Fact also cited rules issued by the House Office Buildings Committee. It bars the use of congressional office buildings for any kind of solicitation, except those for charitable purposes. The watchdog is calling for an immediate investigation into Slotkin. Her spokesperson has yet to respond to a request for comment. The Federal Reserve is expected to rev up its fight against inflation today with a more aggressive rate hike. Entity's Jessica Beatty has more. With inflation at a 40-year high, the Federal Reserve's under pressure to take more aggressive action. Wednesday, it's expected to raise interest rates by three-quarters of a percentage point. That'd be the biggest rate hike since 1994. The goal is to cool down the economy and tame inflation. Last month, Fed Chair Jerome Powell said such a big increase wasn't on the table. Good afternoon. 75 basis point uh, in an increase is not something the committee is actively considering. But it looks like the Fed is considering it now. The Fed has the ability of leaking information, if you will, letting the public know what it's thinking. Sam Stovall is a chief investment strategist at CFRA Research. He says the Fed can leak information and float ideas by having articles be written in the Wall Street Journal. So with the Wall Street Journal uh, report on Monday implying that the Fed could be looking at a 75 basis point increase, I think a lot of uh, Fed watchers and investment strategists have concluded that that is indeed what the Fed will be doing, and that was their way of warning us. Stovall says he thinks the market would be very disappointed if the Fed only raises rates by half a percentage point. It would sort of breathe a sigh of relief that the Fed is paying attention to the numbers if they raise rates by 75, and might be a little bit concerned that uh, maybe the Fed is panicking if they actually raise rates by a full percentage point. But some others think the Fed should raise it even more. Right now, the federal funds rate is three quarters of a percent to one percent. Bond King Jeffrey Gunlock tweeting, the Fed should immediately raise it to three percent. Billionaire investor Bill Ackman said the Fed might win against inflation if it quickly raises rates to between five percent and six percent. The S&P 500 on Monday ended down more than 20 percent from its most recent closing high, confirming it was in a bear market that could signal a recession is coming. A recent Reuters poll found that 40 percent of economists said they expect a downturn within two years. Jessica Beatty, NTD News. The high cost of gas and food is forcing many Americans to cut spending on other items, and it suggests a slowdown in the economy's main driving force. The monthly government reading on retail sales showed a drop of three-tenths of a percent in May compared with April. Gas station spending rose 4% in May compared with the month before. It was up more than 43% from a year ago. Meanwhile, spending at grocery stores, where prices are also higher, rose 1.2% compared with April. That's up close to 9% from a year ago. A strong job market and rising wages have kept consumer spending at a strong pace in recent months, but the shift to higher spending at gas stations and grocery stores is an alarm bell for the U.S. economy. Are lower gas prices worth softening the U.S. position on human rights? Critics say that question is at the heart of President Joe Biden's planned trip to Saudi Arabia next month. The administration says oil isn't the main reason for the visit, but some members of Biden's own party seem skeptical. 
The White House says President Joe Biden's plan to visit Saudi Arabia next month isn't about asking the Saudis to increase oil production. Even some Democrats say they don't buy that. We're experiencing a huge inflationary spiral in the price of oil. We need Saudi Arabia to produce more of it. The Pentagon says the expected bilateral talks are just part of a trip that includes a regional summit. But it's hard to overlook the fact that Saudi Arabia is one of the world's biggest oil producers and a member of OPEC. The war in Yemen is one reason the visit is controversial. It's been called the world's largest humanitarian crisis and a proxy war between Saudi Arabia and Iran. I hope that what comes with it are some real concessions about what's happening in Yemen. Another issue is that the Saudi crown prince has been linked to the murder of a Washington Post columnist. Here's Biden in 2019. Khashoggi was in fact murdered and dismembered, and I believe in the order of the crown prince. Democratic Senator Tim Kaine of Virginia says of the journalist, quote, his bloodstain has not been cleansed. The Senate's number two Democrat says he has concerns about Biden's trip, but... He has a tough job dealing with gasoline prices, and Saudi Arabia is a major player, full stop. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer and others are backing Biden. The president's not kissing the ring of any world leader. The Supreme Court is soon expected to make a ruling on Roe v. Wade. It's unclear exactly when that will happen, but it's likely to take place late June or early July when the court's term usually ends. Our next guest addresses this in terms of emerging violence, First Amendment rights, and by looking at a roundtable discussion that the vice president held on Tuesday. Please welcome Allison Centifanti, who is a pro-life strategist. Thanks for coming on the show, Allison. Thanks so much for having me. Now, following the leak of the draft opinion, pregnancy counseling centers in New York and Oregon have been attacked, and there was also an alleged plot to kill Justice Supreme Court Justice Brett Kavanaugh. What do you make of the new wave of violence that we're seeing? This is absolutely terrifying. It's so scary what's happening in the movement right now. You have pro-life pregnancy centers being firebombed, vandalized, attacked in the middle of the night. You have a Supreme Court Justice, Brett Kavanaugh, with a madman outside of his house with firearms and zip ties talking about how he wanted to kill him. And you have a pro-life movement that has just been peacefully trying to serve women, still trying to do that. And so I think they should be ashamed of themselves. There's groups, organized groups now, called Jane's Revenge, obviously after Jane Roe, who ironically never had an abortion. She chose adoption. You have other groups called um, Ruth Sent Us, after Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who I think Ruth would never want a colleague targeted for death. I disagreed with her on abortion, but I think she was a very smart woman um, in other ways. And so I, I'm fine calling this domestic terrorism. Domestic terrorism is pursuing violence against a political opponent, opponent for, for political gain. And they are doing this to civilians. They are trying to intimidate and threaten them. They should be ashamed of themselves to firebomb a pregnancy resource center anytime and then especially during a formula shortage these places give out formula diapers everything for free it takes a special kind of crazy cruel person to target a pregnancy resource center now allison pro-choice activists have blocked off the streets near the supreme court do you think that people in this camp have just been exercising their right to free speech as given by the first amendment or have they gone beyond those bounds well you know i'm not so much as concerned about blocking off streets they are that is good that they are telling law enforcement what they're doing. You can go online right now and see, they'll say, we're starting a night of rage, the night 
the decision comes down and we're gonna start at 8 p.m. They are signaling what they're doing. So law enforcement is appropriately responding and respecting both sides' right to free speech. I've been at the court before, I'm not sure if you have been, but there's always people protesting, right, on different cases. The issue though now is going beyond speech to physical violence. And that is when they cross the line. And I have pro-life friends in the movement who have been activists, advocates for decades that now are not going down to the court because of this fear. Kamala Harris has met with a team of experts to discuss what would happen if Roe v. Wade is overturned. She has concerns that other things like the use of contraception or same-sex marriage may be taken away. Do you think this is a concern? So I'm afraid this is a little bit of fear-mongering at this point. Um, Pro-abortion advocates never like to defend abortion. They always will bring in some other thing. And so you're seeing that happen here in the conversation. Biden, Kamala have said, well, this is gonna affect same-sex marriage. It's gonna affect birth control, da, 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 da. Look at the draft opinion. We can only go off what we have. It affects abortion. And it talks about how Roe was a wrongly decided, egregiously decided law. And they are sending it back to the states for the states to figure out, to make policy that reflects the opinions of their individual citizenry. That's what we can go off of right now. And I've talked to lawyers across the board who have said that they saw in that draft that the lawyers, the judges, were very careful to make sure. They even said explicitly, this is only affecting abortion law. That is what we were, we are talking about right now. So again, if there's a case in the future that threatens same-sex marriage or birth control, we can talk about that. But to bring in hypotheticals right now is just fear-mongering. They're trying to broaden their base, make people scared to, to act here. And I think that's the wrong message. Pro-life strategist Allison Centifanti, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. Coming up, the Supreme Court could potentially overturn New York State's gun law on concealed carry later this month. So what exactly does the law currently do? Find out right after this short break. The U.S. Supreme Court could hand down a major ruling on a New York state gun law by the end of the month. What does the law currently do, and what would restrictions on gun rights look like in the state if the court were to overturn the law? Here are the details. The New York state gun law currently being challenged in the U.S. Supreme Court is commonly known as the Sullivan Law. It has been in place since 1911. Richard Aborn, president of Citizens Crime Commission of New York City, explains what the law does. It requires anyone who wants to get a gun, particularly a handgun, to go through a background check, go before a judge if you're outside of New York City, go before the NYPD if you're inside New York City, and apply for a license to acquire the firearm, and then decide what kind of license you want. Two gun owners and the New York affiliate of the National Rifle Association filed the lawsuit. The core question of the lawsuit is whether or not there's a constitutional right under the Second Amendment to carry a gun concealed. And if the court rules that there is a constitutional right to carry concealed, that means once you go through the Brady background check and comply with the local licensing provisions, which will be relatively minor, anyone will be able to carry a gun concealed, a handgun concealed. Aborn says he believes it is almost certain that the Supreme Court will overrule and strike down the Sullivan Law as it applies to conceal and carry. But he notes that the court could still give cities or the state the ability to designate sensitive places where guns can't be carried. There is a scenario here where if the sensitive places languages is broad, that you could so effectively legislate 
sensitive places that it would make it very complicated to carry uh, a, a concealed gun uh, throughout the city. Anybody going on the subway would not be able to do it. We just don't know yet what the court's going to say. This case could yield one of the most significant gun rights rulings in a decade. It could potentially impact gun rights restrictions on a national level. A decision is expected sometime this month. Former President Donald Trump apparently must testify. That's according to New York's highest court. It rejected his effort to avoid testifying in the state attorney general's civil investigation. This clears the way for his deposition next month. The state's Court of Appeals said Tuesday there was no substantial constitutional question that would warrant its intervention in the matter. The decision follows a ruling by an intermediate appellate court last month. That ruling enforced a subpoena for Trump's testimony. Trump and his two eldest children, Ivanka and Donald Trump Jr., agreed last week to answer questions under oath starting July 15th unless the Court of Appeals decided to step in. New York Attorney General Letitia James alleges the Trump Organization inflated real estate values in order to get better loan terms and then lowered the values for better tax outcomes. On the other hand, Trump denies wrongdoing and says the case is a political witch hunt. More than $1 billion in COVID relief money lost to fraudulent activity. That's according to the Department of Justice. And officials say their investigations led to criminal charges against nearly 1,500 people. Those cases cover more than $1.1 billion in losses as of March 2022. That's along with 2,300 individuals and entities under civil investigation for fraud. Those cases involve more than $6 billion in loans, the majority of which came from the Paycheck Protection Program. Since the pandemic began, the federal government has sent $5 trillion to families, small businesses, healthcare providers, and other institutions to boost them during the crisis. The Justice Department says a top agent in the FBI had unauthorized contacts with reporters in violation of the agency's policy. A report says the now-retired agent broke numerous bureau rules. The partially redacted report was obtained by Politico. It states former agent Michael Steinbach met with and communicated with reporters between 2014 and 2016. Steinbach served as an executive assistant director at the FBI's National Security Branch when the Bureau was investigating alleged ties between former President Donald Trump and Russia. During that time, the FBI, the FBI was also investigating Hillary Clinton's use of a private email server as Secretary of State. Steinbach retired in 2017. The Justice Department watchdog said, quote, Steinbach had hundreds of contacts with the media for several years. The report said the media contact included social engagements outside of FBI headquarters involving drinks, lunches, and dinners. The watchdog says he also accepted tickets to black tie dinner events without authorization. Steinbach is one of several officials who worked under ex-FBI Director James Comey, who was removed from the Bureau by President Donald Trump in 2017. Authorities say multiple people are dead after a fiery head-on crash in southeastern Wisconsin on Tuesday. The Racine County Sheriff's Office said a semi was pulling a flatbed trailer on State Highway 11 east of Union Grove. Then it crossed the center line and hit a semi pulling a dry bulk tanker. Smoke from the fire was visible from several miles away. Authorities say they will shut the road for an extended period of time. WISN television footage from the scene shows a semi-truck with a flatbed trailer completely engulfed by flames. 
One of the largest manufacturers of baby products is warming customers about some of its rockers. The issue is with the Fisher-Price infant-to-toddler and newborn-to-toddler rockers. Fisher-Price and the Consumer Product Safety Commission say that at least 13 children have died between 2009 and 2021. Fisher-Price says children should never be allowed to sleep in the rockers and they should always be supervised. The company recommends parents watch videos on its Safe Start website for tips on how to use the product safely. Starting June 23rd, a new rule by the Safety Commission forbids any infant sleep products from having an angle of 10 degrees or less. Experts say babies should sleep on firm, flat surfaces with only a fitted sheet. Any other bedding material poses a suffocation hazard. Not even UPS knows precisely how to describe what could be a new way to get packages to your door. The company unveiled a battery-powered four-wheeled cycle to haul cargo more efficiently in congested streets and to reduce its carbon footprint. The company is trying to reach carbon neutrality by 2050. UPS calls the slimmed-down vehicles Equads. They have a familiar look with the company's gold-colored logo on a brown background. The pedal-powered vehicle is dwarfed by the company's traditional trucks, which can draw the ire of motorists trying to get by parked trucks on narrow streets. Delivery companies have tried all sorts of ways to deliver packages, from traditional vans to drones. UPS now has a fleet of more than 1,000 electric vehicles and thousands more that aren't powered by traditional gas engines. The company said a trial run is focused on New York City and several European cities. UPS started in Seattle more than a century ago, and the first deliveries were made by foot or bicycle. As the company grew, so did its motorized fleet. It's the end of an online era. Microsoft is shutting down what was once the king of Internet browsers. This is the message that currently displays when you first open Internet Explorer. As you can see, it says the browser will be retired today, June 15th. Microsoft will no longer support the application on certain versions of its Windows 10 operating system. Internet Explorer debuted in 1995 as part of the Windows 95 operating system. It became an instant hit and at one point commanded 95% of the browser market. That was then. Now it sits at around only 5%. Microsoft even turned its back on the browser, releasing an entirely new app called Microsoft Edge in 2015, and for the last two years, it's been slowly removing support for Internet Explorer within its own products. And if you have any news tips or feedback for the show, don't hesitate to email us at news.today at ntd.com. Still to come, the Kremlin spokesman says communication remains essential in its relationship with the U.S. He also says Russia will still need to deal with the EU and the U.S. Malaysia is dealing with a labor shortage that's affecting palm oil production. The country is the world's second biggest producer and palm oil prices are skyrocketing. We'll have all that and more for you right here on NTD News. The Kremlin says communication remains essential in relations with the United States. Relations between Russia and the West were already at one of their lowest points even before the war in Ukraine. 
There can be new hopes about future relations with the U.S., but it will be a completely different communication. But communication is essential. In the future, we will still have to communicate. The U.S. is not going anywhere, Europe is not going anywhere, so somehow we will have to communicate with them. It will be communication based only on mutual respect, indivisibility and security, common concerns and mutual benefit. Peskov spoke to reporters via a conference call. The West has put an unprecedented barrage of sanctions on Russia since the war started, and President Biden pledged to make Russian President Vladimir Putin a pariah on the world stage. Russia accuses Washington of waging an economic war. Peskov told Russian state news agency TASS that the economic sanctions were difficult, but that they were pushing Russia closer to countries that Peskov calls friendly. He's likely referring to India and China, who have upped purchases of Russian oil. Peskov said the current situation made it unlikely that the two sides would get back to what he called the spirit of Geneva, a reference to a summit between Biden and Putin in 2021 that raised hopes of limiting detente. IKEA says it will further scale down business in Russia and Belarus. The Swedish furniture company announced its plans today. The company had already paused operations in both countries on March 3rd due to the war in Ukraine. But it said, unfortunately, the circumstances have not improved and that businesses and supply chains across the world have been heavily impacted. The company said it's not possible to resume operations anytime soon. As part of this scaling down, IKEA is looking for new ownership for all four of its factories in Russia. All import and export of IKEA products to and from Russia and Belarus will also remain stopped, and its offices in Moscow and Minsk will close permanently. Its IKEA stores will also remain closed. There's a prolonged shortage of laborers in Malaysia, and it's affecting palm oil production. Malaysia is the world's second largest producer of palm oil, but the shortage also reaches across industries from manufacturing to construction and agriculture. From day to night at this plantation in Malaysia, Ari Roman heaves ripe palm fruit into a tiny wheelbarrow. The palm oil extracted from the fruits is used to make edible oils. Malaysia is the world's second largest producer of the commodity. But with a vast area to cover, Roman won't be able to get them all before the harvest cycle is over. He doesn't have much of a choice. He's the only worker present on the whole estate. I start work at 7 in the morning and finish around 5 to 6 in the evening. The problem now is that it's very tiring. As I'm the only one working, there's no one else. It's just me at the moment. Foreign workers, mostly from Indonesia, like Roman, typically made up about 80% of the workforce on Malaysian plantations. That's millions of workers recruited from overseas each year. But that was before the global health crisis and Malaysia's resulting decision to halt the recruit of foreign labor. And despite lifting that freeze in February, Malaysia has not seen a significant return of workers. Industry insiders say that's due to slow government approvals and conflicts over worker protections. Now the prolonged labor crunch is only worsening as demand grows. Plantation owners like Maud Sharul Haizam Shafei can do little else but let some of their harvest go to waste. Previously, we could harvest twice a month, but now the cycle has changed to every 21 days and once a month. In terms of fruit capacity, at the moment, we can get about 200 to 250 tons per cycle. If we had more workers, we would be able to get 300 tons or more. So there's a loss of about 50 tons. 
Analysts warn that the country faces even bigger losses. Global supply chain disruptions and the war in Ukraine are causing palm oil prices to skyrocket. But Malaysia won't be able to capitalize on that potential revenue until the labor shortage is resolved. Just ahead, a European Space Agency observatory has new data on two billion celestial bodies in the Milky Way. New insights include how stars change shape. All that and more right here on NTD News. The European Space Agency's Gaia Observatory has released data that sheds new light on two billion objects in our Milky Way. By using mapping methods with a high level of accuracy, scientists have unveiled new insights into stars and their ability to change shape. Entity's Joy Felix has more. Launched in 2013, Gaia has been mapping the Milky Way. It's releasing its most detailed survey yet with the aim of understanding the life cycles of stars, as well as the characteristics of other objects such as asteroids. Scientists are able to map the position and transit times of stars to a sharper level of accuracy than before, which has become useful when using the parallax method to measure distances to nearby stars. It is like uh, you're trying to measure the distance from Cambridge to London on a baseline of the width of a hair. The parallax method compares the difference in direction of the stars as seen from different positions of the Earth's orbit around the Sun, which Van Luen says is crucial for measuring stellar distances. The treasure trove of data uncovered includes fascinating insights such as starquakes, which means stars change in size, swelling and shrinking periodically while still retaining their shape and structure. Timo Pristi is a scientist on the Gaia project. They really expand, the star becomes really significantly bigger and, and smaller when doing these um, oscillations. Uh, and from those ones, we really know that the size, size is changing. This one is in so small level that we can deduce it uh, only uh, because of the uh, variation in brightness. The Gaia mission hopes that these significant discoveries will help to shed light on how the Milky Way has evolved over billions of years. Joy Felix, NTD News. A major win for SpaceX, federal regulators have given environmental approval for the company's Mars rocket launch out of Texas. The approval is contingent on SpaceX complying with 75 mitigating actions. Some of those include enlisting a qualified biologist to monitor the impact on local wildlife, warning the public ahead of time about loud sonic booms, and agreeing to clean up any shrapnel from its rockets. The company also agreed to limit weekend launches. This approval doesn't guarantee SpaceX can launch its Starship test rocket from Texas. The Federal Aviation Administration still needs to give the all-clear. Paul Cezanne was a French painter of the mid-19th century to early 20th century. He was fondly called the Master of Aix because of his hometown Aix-en-Provence in southern France. Here are the details. Experts say French artist Paul Cezanne loved the geology and colors of the rocks in the quarries on the outskirts of Aix-en-Provence. Guide Arthur Carlier says the famed painter came here for inspiration. It was really important for him because when he came there, he wants several things. He wants 
the, uh, the, it's quiet, so he want to flee the city if you want. He want to flee humanity, and there he paints nature. Aix-en-Provence in southern France is a popular tourist destination. Cezanne was born in the city in January 1839. He painted the region's people, landscape, and also still life. Visitors come from all over the world to explore the city and visit the Musée Granet, home to several Cezanne paintings. In terms of tourism, uh, Cezanne is the ADN of Aix-en-Provence because it's uh, uh, the most famous uh, 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 person in Aix-en-Provence. Everywhere in Aix-en-Provence, there are reminders of Cezanne, like a Cezanne cafe and a Cezanne statue in the center of town. Many tourists visit the city from the United States. I visited the Cezanne Museum with a guide uh, who spoke English. That was a good thing. And uh, it was a wonder for me to learn so much about him that I never actually learned 50 years ago when I was um, a student. Cezanne spent 20 years of his life in Aix-en-Provence before he was drawn to the charms of Paris. He later returned to the city and died here on October 22, 1906. Denmark and Canada have reached an agreement to divide the small Hans Island in the Arctic. The decision marks the end of a nearly 50-year ownership spat between the two NATO members. The island lies between Greenland and Ellesmere Island, Canada. Greenland is an autonomous territory within the Kingdom of Denmark. Neither Canada nor Denmark were aware of the other's claim to the island until a 1971 meeting over territorial boundaries. Since the 1980s, officials, scientists and soldiers from both Denmark and Canada have visited the island. They took turns removing the other country's flag and raising their own. And an unspoken tradition has been passed down. Visitors left behind a bottle of Canadian whiskey or Danish schnapps. Their rivals would find and replace it on their next visit. In 2018, the two nations decided to set up a joint working group to resolve the dispute. The newly reached deal will be officially signed upon parliamentary approval. Some view the peaceful settlement as a sign of Arctic NATO states moving closer together since Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Through this agreement, Canada and Denmark will create the world's longest maritime border of more than 2,400 miles. Russian and Belarusian players will be allowed to compete at the U.S. Open this year, but not under country flags. The decision stands in contrast to Wimbledon, which banned players completely. Wimbledon's move to ban competitors from the tournament prompted the men's ATP and women's WTA tours to strip the tournament of its ranking points. The ATP and WTA have themselves banned Russia and Belarus from competing as teams in international competitions following the start of the war. However, they do allow players from the two countries to compete individually. Players from the two countries were also allowed to play at the French Open. A statement from the U.S. Tennis Association says the organization is putting together humanitarian aid for Ukraine. The main draw at the U.S. Open begins August 29th, and competition goes until September 11th. And if you have any news tips or feedback for the show, don't hesitate to email us at news.today at ntd.com. Coming up, the United States Army turned 247. Many people gathered in Times Square to celebrate. NTD spoke with some of the soldiers there and with a new recruit. A photojournalist and a civilian he saved recall the day she was badly burned by napalm during the Vietnam War. The photo he took of her won a Pulitzer Prize. Stay tuned to find out more.
The United States Army turned 247 on Tuesday, and many people gathered in Times Square to celebrate. NTD's Jason Perry spoke to some of the soldiers there and also a new recruit. We are all the same West Point Band got the crowd warmed up with a few songs to kick off the celebration. Brigadier General John Cushing is a deputy commanding general, and he is responsible for the operations of the U.S. Army Recruiting Command worldwide. Born on June 14, 1775, when the Continental Congress established it, the Army is a year older than the Declaration of Independence and 13 years older than the Constitution. He then administered the oath of enlistment for 24 future soldiers. Then the Army drill team showed off their skills for the crowd. And it wouldn't be a birthday party without cake. Staff Sergeant Michonne Cox migrated from Guyana in South America. She now runs the recruiting station in Mount Vernon, New York. So joining the Army, um, I've acquired my master's in criminal justice. That's one of the big things without any student loan. Um, I've traveled, I've moved around, um, I've owned a couple houses, um, paid off a couple cars. Um, so those are some of the main things that appeal to me because I do have two younger sons that I want to leave something behind for later on. Staff Sergeant Naomi Graham joined the Army as an ammunition specialist and she's now with a detachment called the U.S. Army World Class Athlete Program, and she's boxing for the Army and Team USA. The Army is the greatest decision that I ever made. Um, it supports me in anything that I need, uh, health care, school, and now I'm doing something that I'm very passionate about, being able to box while serving my country is the greatest thing I could have ever done. First off, then I got a chance to speak to one of the newest recruits. Joining because uh, my grandfather was a lieutenant general in my country, back in my country in Namibia. So it's uh, also a family thing. Like nobody ever joined the army after my grandfather. So I felt like I should do it. Lieutenant Colonel Harold Morris is the commander of the New York City U.S. Army Recruiting Battalion. He explained what the army's birthday is all about. Uh, it's an opportunity to recognize the sacrifice of soldiers that came before me and an opportunity to recognize the service of the soldiers that are currently serving. After 247 years, the Army is still alive and well. And something interesting about the numbers 247, many people have been saying today that the Army defends America 24-7. Here at Times Square in New York, Jason Perry, NTD News. Fifty years ago, a young photojournalist covering the war in Vietnam took a photograph and saved the life of a young girl badly burned by napalm. The photo won a Pulitzer Prize, and that day inspired a friendship that has endured for half a century. Here's more. Kim Fook was naked and screaming when she ran directly toward photojournalist Nick Oot's camera. The instant the Associated Press photographer captured her image 50 years ago, on June 8, 1972, she became more than a victim of a napalm strike on a Vietnamese hamlet. She became an international symbol. Not only taking picture, but he did something extra uh, work that he rushed me to the nearest hospital. He saved my life. I owe you. <laughs> I'm so thankful. Fook emigrated to Canada, where she now lives with her husband. She's also become a grandmother. Phuc was nine years old when her village was attacked by South Vietnamese planes dropping napalm. Oot heard Phuc's screams as she ran to escape her burning village and snapped the photo. After taking the photos of her and others, he loaded Phuc into his vehicle 
and took her to a hospital. Talk a lot of photography young today. I say, you know, you photo journalist. If something happened like Kim that day, you need to help the people. First thing you need to help people before you uh, leaving, you know, take the hospital or save people's life first. They both agree that's what saved her life. She had burns scorching over 65% of her body. I want to help her right away. I don't want to take her more picture. And if I take more picture, I think she died right there. I really, I want to help her. Uj won a Pulitzer Prize for the chilling photograph, which came to symbolize the horrors of the Vietnam War. The photograph is thought to be one of the most memorable pictures of the 20th century. The best way to ensure you get all of the vitamins and minerals you need is by eating a wide variety of foods. Let's hear more about that from Gina Marie, who brings us Strong Mind and Body. Vitamins and minerals don't always get the love they deserve. The truth is they keep you healthy and functional. They also protect you from countless diseases. Vitamins are organic substances that come from plants and animals. Vitamins and minerals don't always get the love they deserve. The truth is they keep you healthy and functional. They also protect you from countless diseases. Vitamins are organic substances that come from plants and animals. They're often called essential. This is because there are only a few such as vitamin D that the body can synthesize on its own. That means it's essential that we get them from food. Minerals, on the other hand, are inorganic elements. They come from rocks, soil or water. You can get them directly from plant foods that have taken them up from the soil. You can also get them from animals that have eaten certain plants. Both vitamins and minerals come in two forms. Vitamins can be water soluble. This means that the body expels what it doesn't absorb. Fat soluble means that leftover amounts are stored in fat cells. Vitamin C, B complex vitamins including 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8 and 12 are water soluble. And the fat soluble vitamins are A, D, E and K. Minerals are classified as either major or trace. Majors aren't necessarily more important than a trace. It just means that you need more of them. Calcium is an example of a major mineral, whereas copper is a trace mineral. It can be challenging to follow all of the daily recommended amounts outlined in the Federal Health Guidelines. Instead, it's easier to follow this one piece of advice. Eat a good variety of fruits, vegetables, nuts, legumes, whole grains, dairy and meat. You may be deficient in a particular nutrient. Or maybe your doctor recommends increasing your intake of one or another. If this is the case, supplements may be useful. Otherwise, your diet should be able to take care of everything you need to remain functional and healthy. If you have a dog, you know how special that bond can be. So you'll understand why one woman in Arizona jumped into a canal to save her pup. It happened in Arizona last week, and here's video of crews showing up to rescue her as she was rescuing her best friend. Police say she was out near the Yuma Canal Tuesday night letting her dog run around when she realized her pup had gotten into the water but couldn't get out. So like any dog lover, she went in after the dog, but then they both got stuck for 18 hours. Luckily, a train conductor spotted them and called for help. When rescuers got there, 
they found the woman hanging onto her dog in a tree. She was pretty cut up from holding on for so long, not to mention being sunburned and exhausted. Both she and her pup are expected to make a full recovery. With summer finally here, it's time to fire up the grill and pour yourself a cold glass of milk. Well, June is National Dairy Month. More than half of Americans who answered a poll said milk is their drink of choice to cool down on a hot summer day. That's according to a new survey from the dairy company Fairlife. No conflict of interest here. Nearly three-quarters of Americans polled said they still prefer dairy milk over the alternatives. A strawberry supermoon rose behind an ancient temple on the coast of Greece on Tuesday. The second supermoon of the year casts its light on the marble columns of the Temple of Poseidon on the coast south of Athens. Native American tribes in the United States gave names to full moons, according to the old farmer's almanac. June's full moon was called the strawberry moon in relation to the ripening of strawberries in June. A supermoon happens when the moon's orbit is closest to Earth. That makes it appear larger and brighter than a regular full moon. This ancient temple was built in the 5th century BC. It's located on a cliff overlooking the sea is a popular site for moon watchers. Thank you so much for joining us. We're going to put our email address on screen. We'd love to hear from you. For podcasters, that's news.today at ntd.com. Until next time, Kevin Hogan, NTD News, New York City.